Amen. As David said, I don't know a more appropriate time for us to pray for God to shed His grace upon our nation and for us to be a brotherhood to share the gospel across this country. In your worship guide this morning, you have an insert in there from our Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission talking about Citizenship and Religious Liberty Sunday, which is usually the Sunday before July the 4th. And so there's some information in there from Andrew Walker, one of our men who work at our Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, that would be important reading for you we wanted to pass along today. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to ask you to open to 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, verses 11 through 17. We're actually going to begin in verse 9 in just a few moments. It's going to be a few minutes before we get to our text. But if you'll go ahead and turn with your Bible there. If you don't have a Bible, if you didn't bring one with you or you do not own one, there are complimentary copies of God's Word available in the Pew Acts. Please use those. And if you need to take that with you, please take that as our gift to you today. While you're turning there, I want to draw your attention to just a couple of important events as a church that we want you to be aware of. We recognized Jim and Martha a few minutes ago, but this afternoon we're going to be having a reception here at the church in their honor from 4 to 5.30 in the parlor. We would like for you to come and join us this afternoon, have an opportunity to talk personally with them, to, uh, to just pray over them again, and, and just to encourage them as they enter into this new stage. And so please be here. It's a come-and-go event. You can come anytime between 4 and 5.30. Uh, there'll be cake and punch and some refreshments there, so please take advantage of that this afternoon. And also... On the back of your worship guide, you'll notice that we are beginning our school supply drive for Austinville Elementary School. For several years, we've had the privilege of being able to partner in this mission project with this school to provide school supplies for the children there. We'll be giving you more information about when that, when that distribution will take place and the things that we'll be doing on that day. But we want you to go ahead and start going by and picking up the school supplies uh, getting those at Walmart or Dollar General, places like that, and bring them in. There's several buckets that you can drop those off in. Help us out with that so that we can just overwhelm uh, the students and the teachers of that school uh, with school supplies that they will need this year. Well, because we are getting ready to celebrate Independence Day, today I want to preach on the subject of I Pledge Allegiance, and specifically the Christian and its responsibility towards religious liberty or religious freedom. This week, as many of you know, we will celebrate the adoption of the Declaration of the Independence which birthed this great nation that we call the United States of America. It's actually our 243rd birthday as a country. And for many of us this week, the 4th of July Independence Day signals a, a much-needed break from work, an opportunity to celebrate with food and family and friends. I'll be traveling to, to celebrate with some family in another part of our country. And hopefully, for many of us, an opportunity to enjoy uh, some sort of glorious fireworks show. It's always exciting to see fireworks, and it's always fun to see people uh, 50 and 60 years old become five-year-olds again when it comes time to shoot fireworks. It's always a lot of fun. So there's a lot of great things that we will celebrate this, this year, or this week, as, a, as, as citizens of the United States of America. But... For us as Christ followers, American independence is more than just a celebration of the birth of our nation. American independence is also a time to recognize the critically important religious freedom that we have of religious liberty that we enjoy as a people in this nation. And this is especially true in recent decades as we have seen in our country increasing marginalization for those of the Christian faith. 
We've seen people who follow Christ and the free exercise of religious liberty being exercised as a protective right for almost all people except those of the Christian faith. In many places it seems as though it's, it's your religious liberties are protected as long as you don't believe the Bible. In many arenas of the public square, Christians are not welcomed to share their religious convictions. Many people are not allowed to share their religious beliefs or act upon them within the confines of their occupation for fear that they may lose their job. Christian university students face a continual barrage of secularism and anti-God mentality against a Christian worldview. Christian business owners have been sued, fined by the state, and in some cases have been forced to close their business for refusing to provide services which go against their deeply held religious beliefs. As I said, it almost feels like the mantra today about religious liberty is that one has the right to believe whatever he or she wants as long as he or she never speaks about it and never acts publicly on it. And that's not what happened with the founding of our country. The founders of our nation implicitly recognized the massive importance of protecting people's rights to hold and act upon their religious convictions. Thomas Jefferson, who himself was a deist who did not share the religious convictions of the Bible, he still believed that all people had the right to hold and express their religious convictions. And he, he wrote these words in the document which we will celebrate this week, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That liberty includes religious liberty. The framers of the Constitution would later clarify this in the First Amendment, which reads, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And so since the beginning of the birth of this nation, we have recognized the importance of people being able to hold on to their religious beliefs and to express those religious beliefs in the public square. But in our day and time, that's becoming increasingly harder. If you're a member of this church, you, are, you come through a, a branch of the Christian Protestant persuasion known as Baptist. And as Baptists, the issue of religious liberty is extremely important and deeply held. As a matter of fact, it was one of the major tenets of Anabaptist and later Baptist that for many of them is the reason why they fled some of the countries in Europe. As Southern Baptists, we have a document that guides doctrinally our churches called the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. And in there, Article 17 reads the following, God alone is the Lord of the conscience and He has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are contrary to His word or not contained in it. Church and state should be separate. The state owns, owes to every church protection and full freedom in the pursuit of its spiritual ends. In providing for such freedom, no ecclesiastical group or denomination should be favored by the state more than others. Civil government being ordained by God, it is the duty of Christians to render loyal service thereto in all things not contrary to the revealed will of God. The church should not resort to the civil power to carry on its work. 
The gospel of Christ contemplates spiritual means alone for the pursuit of its ends. The state has no right to impose penalties for religious opinions of any kind. The state has no right to impose taxes for the support of any form of religion. A free church in a free state is the Christian ideal, and this implies the right of free and unhindered access to God on the part of all men and the right to form and propagate opinions in the sphere of religion without interference by the civil power. It's a credibly worded statement about what we believe about religious liberty as Christians in our nation. As Southern Baptists, we love our country. And as Southern Baptists, we love our religious freedom. Yet, it is becoming increasingly more difficult to separate our love for and allegiance to our country from our love for and allegiance to our Savior. There's a very thin line between patriotism and nationalism, and that line has been increasingly shrinking over recent years. Patriotism is good. Patriotism is a, is a healthy love and appreciation for the country in which you reside and the freedoms in which you enjoy. And that is a good thing. Nationalism, however, can leak into exalting one nation above all others and an exalted promotion of the values of that nation above all others. And sometimes it's a blurred line between when we celebrate the patriotism and the freedoms we enjoy and the imposing of our nationalistic beliefs upon others. And I have discovered that in our culture, especially at the toxic age of our culture in, in recent decades, it can sometimes be difficult for the genuine follower of Jesus Christ in America to balance their devotion to country with their devotion to Jesus Christ. Sometimes we confuse those two. For instance, let me give you a few examples. If I were to ask us to stand in just a second and we were to recite the Pledge of Allegiance to the American flag of the United States of America and we all stood up, we could all stand up and say that pledge verbatim, couldn't we? However, unless you've worked in vacation Bible school over the last year or two, if we ask you to stand up and say the Pledge of Allegiance to the Christian flag without putting the words on the screen, chances are that some of us in here would probably not be able to remember those words. If I were to ask us this morning to sing without the words on the screen, the words to the national anthem, most of us could probably stand up and do that. Now sometimes we watch as people try to do that at ball games and they stumble over it and forget the words, but most of us could probably remember the vast majority of the words to our national anthem. However, as Christ followers, most of us are not as familiar with the words to a mighty fortress is our God. And we can sing with, with passion about the love for our country, but many of us, if we didn't have the words to a mighty fortress, we would not be able to sing that today. In many churches, the average member of the church would be more offended if I, as a pastor, stood up and endorsed a, a political candidate of a party opposite of the one that you follow. If I stood up in this pulpit and gave a public endorsement for such candidate, you would probably be more offended by that than you would be if I preached something that was theologically inaccurate. I'm as patriotic as anybody, and one of my favorite things to do from time to time is to go out to Stone Mountain and watch the laser show on the side of Stone Mountain. You've seen that before, and I always get choked up, and probably you do too, when we get to that part in the in the laser show when the lasers start to put out an American flag and Lee Greenwood's God Bless the USA begins to come on. 
But it's interesting that we can all get choked up when we hear Lee Greenwood sing, God bless the USA, but then we sit in stoic silence when the church sings, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise. The glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. And we sing those songs, and for many of us, we stand like it means absolutely nothing. I'm afraid that sometimes we have confused Jesus' words to go and make disciples of all nations to mean an indoctrination into American ideals instead of an indoctrination into the gospel. So how do we balance rightfully held patriotic love for our country with commitment to our Savior? Well, the text that we're going to read today is going to help us with that because the people that Peter was writing to at this time were Christians who were spread across the Roman Empire and lived in a culture that was marked by religious pluralism and moral decadence. In addition to this, these Christians were distinctively different in their personal conduct and they rejected the worship of the emperor. And because of that, they were often marginalized and at best and sometimes deeply persecuted at worst. And many of them were wondering, what does it mean to be a Christ follower in this Culture. What does it mean to be a Christ follower under the emperor and under the rule of the Roman government? And the words that Peter writes to them in 1 Peter chapter 2 are very appropriate even for us today. So let's begin with verses 9 and 10 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Because I think they really set the tone for what we're going to look at in verses 11 through 17. Peter writes to the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's our, that's our calling, that's our job description as a church, that we exist to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us from spiritual darkness into spiritual light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Stop there a second because it's important for us to understand what Peter is telling us here. He is writing to believers who were struggling with their place in the world. They had been saved by Jesus Christ, but they were citizens of an empire that in many ways stood opposed to who Christ was. And so Peter grounds them in this truth that you and I need to understand, and that is this. Before we are called to be subject to and loyal to any earthly kingdoms, we are to remind ourselves that we are a chosen, holy, and set-apart people unto God. Before we are ever called to be subject to and loyal to any nation on this planet, we are to remind ourselves, as Peter says here in verses 9 and 10, that we are a chosen, holy, set-apart people unto God. We've been transformed by the gospel, and we are now part of the kingdom of God. And this heavenly kingdom, while invisible in many ways, is the locus of our identity as the people of God and the grounds of our allegiance and the source of our daily conduct. And so, as he's about to give instructions in verses 11 through 17, those instructions are grounded in the gospel in which he proclaims to them in verses 9 and 10. You are a chosen people, a holy people, a people set apart to God. Now, because of that, here's what you should do. Let's read further. Verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. Peter is speaking to us to show us how as Christ followers, our allegiance to Christ should guide our daily conduct in this world. Whether we are free citizens of a nation such as ours who enjoy the blessings of religious liberty, or whether we are citizens of a state in which our religious beliefs may not be respected, and in some cases we may be persecuted for them. No matter what, as, as Paul was writing to these people, they were living in a place where their, their stance for their Christian faith was in many times the subject of which made them objects of, of persecution. They didn't enjoy religious liberty like we do in our country today. But whether we enjoy the blessings of a free nation or whether or not our, our status as Christ followers and our allegiance to Him should be what guides our conduct in this world. And so as Christ followers who are citizens of these great United States, my prayer is that not only will we gladly and joyfully celebrate our freedoms this week, but we will also use those freedoms for the one thing that matters the most, and that is the expansion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we remember that, that this truth, that the religious liberties that we enjoy are good gifts from a gracious God, and that they should be celebrated with joy and stewarded with gospel urgency. Put that on the screen if you would for me, Jimmy. The religious liberties that we enjoy are good gifts from a gracious God, a sovereign God, a God who knew long before you ever came to be that you would be born in this time, in this great nation. And He has given you a good gift of a nation that allows you religious liberty and freedom of worship. And that gift should be celebrated rightfully with joy, but it should also be stewarded with gospel urgency. With that in mind, I want to give you three pledges that I want us to make today as Christ followers and as citizens of the kingdom of God. Three pledges that come from this text, which I think frame our identity as Christians in a free and religious state. The first of those pledges is simply this. May our allegiance to our heavenly king always be greater than our devotion to our earthly country. May our allegiance to our heavenly king always be greater than our devotion to an earthly country. Again, you see it in verses 11 through 13 when he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation and be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or as he continues to governors. As Peter is writing to these Christian believers, he does so reminding them of this truth. No matter what the status of our earthly citizenship, this world is not our home. As followers of Jesus Christ, no matter what our passport or our driver's license may say, no matter what the status of our earthly citizenship, this world 
is not our home, and so our allegiance to our heavenly king should always be greater than our devotion to our earthly nation. He reminds them of this by using two words to describe them in verse 11. You see them there. The first word is the word sojourner, and the second word is the word exile. These are words that speak about being in a transient state. What do they mean? Well, a sojourner is someone who resides temporarily in a place. He sojourns in that place He's only there temporarily. And an exile is someone who is temporarily and sometimes permanently displaced from their home country. And so as as he looks at these Christians, he reminds them that because they have been redeemed by Christ, they are now sojourners and exiles in this earthly kingdom. See, if you and I were to visit Disney World this week... We would sojourn in Orlando for a little while, but we would not be citizens of Florida or the city of Orlando. This coming September, I will board a plane and I will go to Uganda to engage in training pastors in the gospel of Jesus Christ at Abana's Hope. When I land in that country, I will be granted a temporary visa which gives me the, the opportunity to reside in that country for a little while. And while I am there, I will sojourn in the beautiful nation of Uganda. And while I am there, I will be temporarily displaced from my home country. I will be an exile temporarily from my home country into the nation of Uganda. And yet during that entire time, I will never cease to be an American citizen. And so Peter uses these two words before he gives them these these instructions He gives them these two words, sojourners and exiles, to remind them of this important truth that we often forget. And that is, if you have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, you have a spiritual change of citizenship. If you have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, your citizenship status has changed spiritually. Because you have rescinded your citizenship to this fallen world and have pledged allegiance to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so your spiritual citizenship status has changed. And this means for the Christian that our allegiance to the sovereign king who saved us and the one who has redeemed us from sin must be greater than our allegiance to any and all earthly nations. This is what Peter is telling us in verse 13 when he says as Christians we are to be subject to every human institution. But look at what he says. He says we do so for what? For the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake, be subject to every human institution. As we engage in this culture as American citizens and citizens of the kingdom of Christ, we serve as ambassadors and representatives to this culture. This was extremely important for these first century believers because for many of them, as they were being openly persecuted by the government, they refused to pledge ultimate allegiance to Caesar and instead pledged it to a Jewish rabbi who was crucified as a political prisoner of Rome. And the Romans could not understand why these Christians would not worship the emperor and would instead worship someone like that. We do the same thing as followers of Jesus Christ. We pledge our ultimate allegiance to Jesus Christ and not to any nation or power. And so there are a couple of practical ways practical applications that I want to give you to help you balance your allegiance to Christ with your allegiance and devotion to your earthly country. The first of those is this, be proud of your country, but reserve worship for your king. Be proud of your country, 
You know, David asked me this week, hey, you know, we're, we're getting ready to come up on July the 4th, and we normally put up some banners, and we put some bunting down the side. Do you want to do that? And, and I said, absolutely. Because as, as people of this country, we should be proud of our country. But we didn't come here today to worship the United States of America. We came here to worship King Jesus. There's absolutely nothing wrong with being patriotic, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with loving your country. One of my guilty pleasures is reading biographies about the founding fathers and the men and women who have defended this great nation. And just like you, I root for my country in the Olympics hard. There's nothing wrong with being patriotic, but it is very easy to subtly confuse a love for our country for a worship for our nation. You see, whenever we defend unbiblical actions because it's in the best interest of our country, we are in danger of worshiping the wrong thing. Whenever we compromise God's written word and defend that action because we are protecting our nation, our allegiance to our country may have superseded our devotion to Jesus Christ. And it may be hard for many of us to remember that God is not represented by the colors of red, white, and blue, and Jesus does not look like Uncle Sam. Be proud of your country, but reserve your worship for your king. Secondly, be politically engaged, but trust ultimately in your sovereign God. One, one arena in which we must tread lightly as followers of Jesus Christ is the arena of politics. You see, as citizens of this free nation, it is right and it is our duty to care about how decisions are made and how laws are passed. And because we have many people who have died to defend that freedom, we should be politically engaged. But the political arena can often create a slippery slope in which we confuse the gospel with the best interest of us as American citizens. And sometimes we can forget, again, that our allegiance is to our king and not always ultimately to our country. And sometimes what's in the best interest of America is not always in the best interest of the kingdom of God. In recent years, our country has been sharply divided politically, creating this continual us versus them mentality on all sides of every issue. And it becomes very easy to tout a party platform. But before we do, we must always ask ourselves, how has God spoken on this issue? What does God's Word say about this issue? Because it doesn't matter what the Republicans or what the Democrats say if it's contrary to what God's Word says. Be politically engaged, but trust ultimately in your sovereign God. In his book, The Trivialization of God, Donald McCullough talks about false deities that we encounter in the culture. And one of those he describes as the God of my nation. He describes it as a dangerous deity in which we shape our view of God to be someone who holds our personal, political, and national ideologies. And he writes these words, and these words were written in 1995, but they are still just as pressing and true today. He wrote, Truth is, many in the American church are Americans first and Christians second. They've never consciously prioritized these loyalties, though, because it's never occurred to them that there may actually be a difference, let alone a conflict between those two things. But when American patriotism is blended with Christian spirituality, the former patriotism will always bully the latter. 
Patriotism, if it's anything more than sentimentality, leads inevitably to politics. And politics creates a concrete immediacy. It regulates lives, reaches into pocketbooks, opens doors for some and closes them for others. And this practicality exerts a powerful gravitational pull from which our Christian commitments separate us with great difficulty. The consequent distortion of perspective eventually shapes our view of God. Then he goes into talking about how for many in the evangelical movement, they believe that the Christian perspective is more of a Republican perspective. And for many in more of the mainline church movement, the political perspective is more of a Democratic perspective. And we allow our allegiance to those parties to color sometimes the way that we see issues, especially without regarding what the Bible says about them. He says this finally in, those, in that book. He says, Both deities, the one who rides an elephant and the one who rides a donkey, are trivial gods too limited by narrow interest to do anything but create a pseudo-religious atmosphere that, however handy for political huckstering, has not the power to save a, a nation, let alone a single individual. Those words have resonated in my mind for almost 22 years now. And so as the people of God, may we pledge allegiance to our heavenly King and may our allegiance to Him always be greater than our devotion to our earthly country. But secondly, may our lives always be marked by a pursuit of holiness, godly submission, and honor. May our lives always be marked by a pursuit of holiness, godly submission, and and honor. After reminding us that we are citizens of Christ's kingdom before we are citizens of any earthly nation, Peter reminds us of the importance of our daily conduct and living in such a way that we remember that we continually represent Christ. In verses 12 through 13, he says the following Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable at all times because eventually, he says, they will speak against you and they will accuse you of doing something wrong. They will accuse you of evil, but because of the honorable conduct they will eventually see your good deeds, and when Christ comes again, they will give glory to Him. That verse should be emblazoned on the heart of each and every person in this place that claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ. What is Peter saying? Peter is saying that the reality of what we believe is demonstrated in the way we conduct our lives each and every day. The reality of what we truly believe is demonstrated in the way that we conduct our lives. The Gentiles here is a New Testament term for those who do not know who God is. They are apart from the covenant of grace and salvation. And yet, as we interact with them every day, the reality is they do not know our Lord, but they are watching our lives. And how we live tells them what we truly believe about God. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. He reminds us that people without Christ not only will not only underst not understand or agree with what we believe, but often they will criticize us and speak against it. We've seen this in our country. And for many of us, it's a disturbing trend. It's something we're not used to because 
Most of us have grown up under the illusion, and I use that word very carefully, the illusion that the United States of America is a Christian nation. And we have enjoyed the freedom of a Judeo-Christian ethic which has guided most of our country for many, many years. But God has no Christian nations. God only has one kingdom. That's the kingdom of God. And there are nations that are founded upon biblical principles like ours, but our nation, while it is a great nation, was not founded by a majority of Christians. And the reality is, is that we don't drift towards holiness, we drift away from holiness, and it should not surprise us that the longer our nation exists, the more and more we drift away from God. And so people without Christ not only will not understand what we believe and argue and criticize us, they will accuse us of trying to impose our religious beliefs on others. They belittle our stance on the biblical definition of marriage or the rights of the unborn. They ridicule our belief on the exclusivity of salvation in Jesus Christ. But, Peter says, even though they do all these things, they are watching us. And they are listening to our words and they are watching our lives. And so we need to commit to keeping our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. For this reason, we are to live lives of holiness and godly submission both to Christ and the state. That's why he says in verse 13, to be subject for the Lord's sake to human institutions. So yes, that means as a Christian, you should be careful about the speed at which you drive. Yes, as a Christian, you should be careful about the laws of our land and keeping the laws of our land. Because what you, how you interact with the laws of our country says a lot about our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we should live lives of holiness and godly submission to the state. And we should live lives which honor the value of all people, even those we disagree with politically. Notice that three times in this section, Paul, Peter uses the word honor. Once in verse 12 and twice in verse 17. We should live lives in such a way that the people that we come into contact with, who may vote differently than us, who may be on the different sides of the aisle of us on almost every political persuasion, that when they leave our presence, they should feel honored and not condemned. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Basically, a way to apply this, as he says here in this text, is to be submissive to the state, but be more submissive to the Lord. Be submissive to the state. Be submissive to the, to the country that God has placed you in, but be more submissive to the Lord. Peter reminds us that government is an institution that is given to us by God to punish evil and promote good. And where there, whenever there has been people, there has always been some system to govern what is acceptable, lawful, and good. And as Christian citizens, we are to be models of submission to the state as long as the state does not call us to compromise our biblical convictions. In our own country, we have seen brothers and sisters in Christ being forced by the state to compromise those convictions or to face penalties. And our nation, which once protected the right of conscientious objection, is now seeing those days fading. And so what do we do when we find ourselves in that situation? What do we do when the law tells us we can't do something? What do we do when the law comes to us as a church and says, if you do not perform same-sex marriages as a church, we will, we will remove your tax-exempt status? What do we do? 
We are submissive to our state, but we are more submissive to our Lord and the Word of God. So number three, may we pledge that our freedoms always motivate us to be servants of Christ to a dying world. May our freedoms always motivate us to be servants of Christ to a dying world. May we remember that the freedoms that we enjoy in our nation are not for us. They are for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in verse 15, this is the will of God. You ever wonder what the will of God is? You ever say, I wish I knew what God's will is. Well, the reality of it is that God's will is all over the pages of Scripture. Just go and look up every single time the Bible says this is the will of God and do those things, you're pretty much on the right track. What is the will of God? This is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. The will of God is that by living honorable and holy lives in front of lost people and living in godly submission to the government, that our goodness and our allegiance to live according to those rules will silence the mouths of ignorant and foolish people who criticize us. There are no lack of critics for both Christians and the church today. And that's always been true and will be more so in the future. But one thing that we cannot do as Christ followers is give them fuel for their criticism. There's been no lack of critics, but we cannot give them fuel for their criticism by living lives of moral and spiritual compromise. That's been going on in the church for far too long. Instead, as we live holy, they will not understand and will often criticize us, but their arguments will ultimately be silenced because the gospel will always prove to be true. Peter says, live as people who are free. And this freedom is not necessarily religious liberty as we see it, but it is a freedom that is grounded in Jesus Christ. When he says live as people who are free, he's not talking about your constitutional right as an American citizen. He's talking about a freedom that was secured for you by Jesus Christ. John chapter 8, Jesus says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Not a constitution. And the one whom the Son sets free is free indeed. People in our nation often celebrate by saying, I live in a free country, right? And often what we mean by that is that, is that freedom is some sort of lack of restraint or limit on anything that we want to do. We believe that to be freedom, but that is not freedom, that is enslavement. A lack of restraint or limit on what we can do is not freedom. It is an enslavement to our own sinful passions and desires. True freedom is only found in godly submission to Jesus Christ. And that's why he says to, to live as people who are free, but live as servants of God. Be servants of Christ to a dying world. And do so by honoring all people as people who are made in the image of God and someone for whom Christ died on the cross. Whenever you start to get into an argument with a neighbor or a co-worker or a family member about something going on in our nation, remember as you engage in that argument that you are never called to dishonor that person, that you are called no matter who you talk to, to honor all people as someone who is made in the image of God and for whom Christ died on the cross. I would just tell you to apply it 
like this. I believe in the church, we would be far more effective if we would be known more as a force for gospel change than a critic of social ills. We would be far more effective in the church in America today if churches were known more as a force for gospel change than being a critic of social ills. Because too often the people of God are known more for being negative, critical, and judgmental. We spend far too much time criticizing the evils of our culture and far too little time praying for our nation and seeking to tackle the evils of our nation with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If it was so simple that all of our social ills could be handled by the myriad of things that we post on Facebook, we would have revival in our nation many, many years ago. But the reality of it is, is for many of us, we need to type things less and pray more. We need to get less angry publicly about the things that ultimately don't matter and more committed personally about the things which do. And what matters is the eternal souls of people. And so may we be known as a church that is more of a force for gospel change than a critic of social ills. That doesn't mean we don't have the right as American citizens to protest or to speak against cultural ills. But I found out a long time ago that the people in our world will never know the goodness of our Savior until they first see it demonstrated in our own lives personally. And so when they see us, may they not see us as harsh, judgmental, critical people. May they see us as people who are radically in love with our Savior. And because of that, we want everybody to know and experience Him. We rightfully celebrate the birth of a great nation this week. But as we do so, we also rightfully trust in the greatness of a risen Savior. And so this morning, we want to give you an opportunity to pledge your allegiance to the one who really matters, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've never personally come to a time in your life where you have personally surrendered your heart and life to Christ, where you've asked Jesus Christ to come into your, to your life to forgive you of your sins, to cleanse you, where you've never truly repented of your sins, where you've never truly said, God, I want you to take my life and I want you to change my life. I want you to come in and, and cleanse me and I repent of my sins today and I trust in you. I believe in what you have done on the cross and I want to trust in that to save me. I want to give you the opportunity to do that today. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. It's not a, it's not a decision to put off till tomorrow or next week or next month or next year. If you sense the Holy Spirit speaking to you this morning saying you need to get right with the Lord, you need to give your life to Christ, I want to give you an opportunity to do that today. Maybe you need to come today because just in the course of things you've realized that sometimes you walk that very fine line and sometimes your allegiance to your country sometimes overtakes your allegiance to your king. And maybe you just need to come this morning and say, King Jesus, I'm surrendered to you. No matter what happens in this world or this nation in which I live, my allegiance is ultimately to you. Whatever it is that God's calling you to do, we want you to be obedient to that today. Would you bow your heads? David and the team are going to come and lead us in a song of invitation. As they do, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us the great United States of America. We thank you for the freedom of this nation. We thank you that that freedom affords us to be able to drive across town and participate in this church or among the dozens of other churches within a couple of miles of our, of our homes. And there are many people in our world today for whom that's not true. 
There are many brothers and sisters in Christ that don't enjoy the freedoms of being able to assemble and worship without fear of reprisal. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for placing us in this great country in this great time. And God, may we use that freedom not just for the sake of ourselves, but may we use that freedom for the expansion of the gospel to every corner of this globe. God, may we steward that freedom with gospel urgency today. Father, I pray for anyone who needs to give their heart and life to Christ today, that you will give them the courage and the conviction to act upon that today. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, sing this song, and follow as the Lord leads you.